Six Figure Developer Podcast, a podcast where we talk about new and exciting technologies, professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. With us today is James Avery, founder and CEO of Kevl, previously co-founded TechPub, and The Lounge and Ruby Row. Welcome, James. Thanks for having me. So, James, uh, before we kind of get into the meat of things, would you give our listeners a little introduction to yourself know, uh, tell them how you got started. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, like you said, I'm the founder and CEO of Kevl. Uh, Previously, I was a software engineer. So I got started kind of in the .NET space, uh, was a Microsoft MVP, all those things back back in the day when .NET was first starting. Like I was one of the first people to use the ASP.NET beta uh, way back, when was that, 2004 or something like that, or earlier, uh, 2001. And then was an independent consultant, uh, worked for a bunch of large companies, and then uh, kind of found my way into the advertising space by starting The Lounge, which was actually one of the, it was like the original .NET uh, developer network, uh, working with people like Scott Hanselman and Phil Hack and a lot of the kind of old school .NET Microsoft guys. I guess that kind of introduced you to, brought you to Kevl. What are you doing here? You're, you, you, so you founded Kevl and you're the CEO. What, what is that like for you? Yeah, uh, I mean, it's, it's amazing. Like I started out, uh, I think I like a lot of engineers. I was looking to build something that, you know, I didn't want to, I was tired of writing other people's code. Uh, and I was looking to say, how do I, how do I build something? Uh, how do I sell it myself? How do I build a company? Uh, and I started that, you know, 10 years ago at this point. Uh, so it started as just me building all the original code. Uh, and and launching it, we raised a little bit of money, hired some more people, started, uh, you know, I was sales for a while, started hiring salespeople, hiring marketing people and like scaling the company up. And so we're about 50 people now and work with a lot of great companies like, uh, you know, Ticketmaster and and other, uh, you know, pretty top tier companies. So I would imagine you probably don't have your hands in the code then. Uh, on a day-to-day bit today, or is that still the case? My uh, my commit, my commit, like uh, what do you call it? I'm not allowed to commit code anymore. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> trying to find a more diplomatic way to say that I got kicked out. Um, but yeah, I think it was after the time that I made a change, committed it, pushed it up, and then the build failed because I didn't even like run any tests or compile anything before I did it. So. I uh, got revoked, but, uh, but yeah, I still, uh, I still am involved a lot on the product side and, uh, and just, you know, once an engineer, always an engineer, yeah, you know, I can't help sure. but get in there with our VP of engineering and some of our principal engineers and discuss, you know, architecture and how we're going to build things out and things like that. So, uh, as mentioned in your bio, this is not your, your first foray. Uh, Kevl is not your first foray into a company. Uh, one of the companies in the list that I was extremely familiar with was TechPub. I used to love TechPub. I literally, I, I subscribed to it the second I saw it. And just want to say to you and Rob Connery, thank you, because I would not be where I am now if TechPub had not existed. That's TechPub awesome. Was, was more important to me than Pluralsight and a whole bunch of other stuff. On that, though, TechPub 
probably had to have a decent amount of scalability because, you know, you've got thousands or maybe hundreds of thousands of people coming in and watching these videos and everything else. How did you guys handle scaling that that up? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, TechPub was great. Rob, working with Rob was great. You know, we never had, I don't think we ever had hundreds of thousands of people, but I'll take the thousands. Wow. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yeah, like it was, it was great. It was really a testament to cloud technology, right? Like what we did was we kind of went and figured out how to build it on Amazon and how to do a lot of these things where we were hosting this stuff on CloudFront. We were, you know, for, you could remember with TechPub, you could actually download the videos, which like nobody else mm-hmm. still does to this day, I think. Uh, you know, or you could stream them. And we figured out how to basically live stream them through CloudFront. And it was just Amazon scalable, right? Like, I think the amount of like actual hard tech we wrote was a handful of like backend, you know, scripts to be able to like upload this stuff, like render it and upload it to the right spot. And then it was like a simple website. Uh, and we rewrote the website like four times because every time Rob wanted to do a video on like a new tech, he's like, I'm going to rebuild the site <laughs> using it. So it's like, it started out in like, uh, like MVC and then it became like Ruby on Rails because he wanted to do one on that. And then I think it went back to MVC with like one of the newer releases. And so, you know, all the tech for TechPub was was rebuilt like three times. Yeah, I, I do remember some of those videos. <laughs> He'd always forget to add back in like, because I was, I did a lot more of the, the marketing, like if you went to a user group back then, you would get like a card, you know, for like a free class. And like, we would take them to uh, all the different conferences and and I'd have to go like, he'd rebuild it for the class. And then he'd be like, but I didn't add back in like your coupon code or the, or any of the <laughs> analytics. So then I'd have to like go download it and get it running and like, and like code in all the coupon coding and analytics and the things that like weren't, you know, part of the main flow of the app. So that's that's really nice that you were able to lean on the on the cloud as much as you were able to. It it feels to me like the ability to do that is is changed over the years, though. Like many companies are dealing with issues where scaling out isn't like you can't you can't scale up far enough. Scaling out is becoming more and more difficult because I don't know. We hit a phase and we're like, oh, microservice everything, and so the applications are even more complicated than they used to be because. They're really just large interior applications spread over across the network. How are you dealing with that kind of stuff at Kevl? Are you, are you, you know, in the in the the current trend of breaking everything into microservices, or are you approaching things differently to maintain scalability? Yeah, I think at and so at Kevl, the scale we have to deal with is, I mean, it's billions and billions of requests a day, so you know, very high numbers of requests a second. And essentially like conventional architecture and how you would build a, you know, enterprise app, which is what I used to do, all of that breaks down. Like I can tell you the original version of, of the, you know, ad serving code way back for the lounge, you know, 10 plus years ago uh, was like, you know, it just called a select against a table and the table had all the ads in it and it decide which one to serve, right? Like you, you can't do that anymore. You can't do that anymore. <laughs> and maybe with, you, know, you could probably pay some company enough money to make your database scale to that, but like, you're not going to run a profitable business paying that much. But yeah, so on the uh, kind of the scaling, scaling out part, right? Like I think what a lot of people don't realize is that most apps, when people start to scale out, they scale out part of the application and not all of it. And so they leave some bottleneck in there. Like uh, I remember a, a guy, a talk I was seeing a long time ago, I can't remember who, who it was, 
uh, but he was kind of talking about this scaling of an application and how, you know, you have an app server and the app server can auto scale in Amazon and you're really proud of your ability to auto scale. And then he'd say, well, do you have a queue? And you're like, yeah, we use, uh, we use RabbitMQ. And it's like, what is the queue auto scale? And it's like, no. And so you don't really, you, you have one part of your system that can scale out, but you haven't built that scale out functionality into everything. And going back to the microservices piece, uh, we don't, um, well, I would say certain parts of the system, we use microservices, but in the parts that are highly scalable, the approach we actually take is something I like to call uh, every engine is an island. So what we call our, our servers that kind of uh, do the main part of handling requests and impressions and clicks, uh, we call engines. And the idea of every engine is an island is that it can literally be that box that gets drywalled in somewhere and it will just run by itself for 10 years if it doesn't get rebooted <laughs> um, because it every external dependency is just another you know pager duty alert waiting for you mm. uh, to crop up so those those are pretty self-contained they have to, they have all the data they need to continue to serve they write all their logs to disk right so like a lot of people when you think about impression data the disk is your friend. You can write a lot to the disk really quick. You can then ship those files around. And the only danger, right, is like if the, it does have to talk to external services to get updates, right, of like what changes are to pacing and things like that. And if that goes down, then that data will get stale. So it's not, it's not, it's like an island with a limited amount of food supplies, right? It's, it's good for a while, but you're going to need, you're going to need a shipment at some point. So for our younger, for our junior devs, uh, what's a pager? Oh, pager duty. Oh, yeah. Pager. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Somebody mentioned that the other day that pager duty needed to uh, change their name because the the millennials or you know Zoomers coming up won't won't understand the reference. <laughs> Before we hit record, we were talking about Kevil and and you gave the the quick little elevator speech describing what it is and and what it's for. Uh, do you mind just refreshing our memory of what that was? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so essentially, the way I like to talk to developers about it is that we're we're Twilio for for ad platforms. So we see lots of companies are building really innovative ad platforms, right? When you look and you look at Twitter and how they're doing advertising or Pinterest, we want more companies to be able to build really good ad platforms, ones that are good for users, good for advertisers, uh, and so our APIs make it a lot easier to do that. Uh, the part you know we take we tackled the hard part of you know, building a really scalable architecture. And so we can leave up to the developers the part of integrating it into their platform, figuring out the right way to show these ads, figuring out how to optimize them. Uh, so that's that's really what Kevl is, is, you know, if, if you're in a place like a marketplace or a travel company where there's a really uh, good opportunity, you can build that ad platform without having to build everything from scratch. Our backgrounds are more of line of business applications, enterprise level applications. And we think about scaling, to Clayton's point earlier, I think, we think about scaling as spin up or, or increase a CPU or RAM on the app server or increase the performance on the database or something like that. So we're thinking about enterprise level architectures maybe a little bit differently, maybe breaking out microservices that can scale or uh, scale up or out. But you're talking about a scale that is pretty unheard of in that line of business type application when you're talking about billions of requests per day. So what are the differences when you are designing an application at that scale? 
Yeah. I mean, I think uh, like a lot of the big differences, right. Is like, I used to write those enterprise line of business apps and, you know, you do still have to do scaling work. Uh, but I think the big difference is that in enterprise apps, I feel like a lot of times when you're working on scalability, a lot of it is optimization, right? Like, I, like I, when I would go into these companies and they would have something, a bunch of people wrote and it was super slow and we'd go in and we'd look and we'd say, oh, you guys, your indexes are all wrong in SQL Server. You're, you know, you're doing, you're, you're, you're returning 7,000 rows and filtering them in memory, right? Like it's lots of those kind of things that like get that app to the, to the right level. The stuff that we're building, a lot of times it, you can't fix it just by optimizing those things. We still try to, right? Like it's always the cheapest way to do it. If you, you know, like uh, it always goes back to so many times developers want to focus on that performance and they feel like it's they're failing if they like double the size of the box. But that is 100% almost always the cheapest thing to do unless you're using like Oracle, right? It's just say like, you know, it's like, oh, this we need to make this run faster. And you're like, oh, we're on a, a 2X extra large on Amazon. And it's like, well, do, do we solve this problem by just making it a 4X? Because the company will gladly pay another 300 bucks a month because they're going to pay you that in a couple hours and you probably aren't even going to fix it in those couple hours. So throwing hardware at it is tried and true, you know, still, still always a good idea. Um, but then I think when I, you know, the difference is that there are these architectural differences and things that just go out the window. Like you can't talk to your database on every call. You know, you can't, you can't assume that you can write to a queue at this speed. Like we used to try to do that for a lot of events is write them to a queue. And it just becomes a, a fire hose that can be really tough to maintain if anything breaks down and pulling off that queue. And that's where we found that writing to disk was sometimes the best option. So do you switch to something like a different technology or do you just break the problem down differently? Yeah, I think it's it's mainly architectural. Like I think that there are some technologies that work better than others for things that are highly scalable, mm. but I'm convinced you could you could write it in any language, right? I mean, there's, you know, there's very highly scalable Java applications. There's you know, Shopify is using Ruby still, or Facebook is using PHP. Uh, like the stuff can be done. It's all about that architecture of, of really limiting these, you know, limiting these bottlenecks and figuring out ways to make it so that parts of it can go down or parts of it can slow down. Uh, you know, and we have, you know, thousands of Amazon instances running. So at any given time, Amazon is trying to kill one of those instances, <laughs> right? Like just the odds are not in your favor. And so you can't have a system where it's like, oh, we have, you know, in an enterprise line of business, you might say, oh, we got, you know, we have our database and RDS or we have, you know, we have a cluster of three app servers and it's like, your odds are pretty good. You're not going to get, you're not going to get reaped. But like uh, the odds increase a lot when you have thousands of these. Like John was saying earlier, uh, at the at the you know your standard enterprise level, when there's something slow in the system, it's the D, it's the database or it's this inefficient code, and you can you can do you can use metrics and determine what part is slow, and then go try to enhance that. But at the level that you're at, how do you how do you even find what's the next thing to try and and change in order to achieve the results that you need to achieve? Like how do you know? that you need a queue or how do you know that you need scalable queues or to write to the, to the file system? Yeah. I mean, I think some of it still comes down to profiling. So we still profile our code a lot because that is still the cheapest way to in, improve performance, right? Is to look at where are we pulling too much data out of, you know, we use Redis 
uh, a lot like on the machine, right? Because like we limit that network hop by putting it on the machine. If we're pulling back too much data from Redis, that increases memory pressure, puts more, the, you know, we go through more data in, in memory. So like there's still those optimizations still make sense. But then when you're looking at like the architectural side of things of saying, well, I don't want to call SQL Server. You know, I don't want to call like a relational database here. You know, what are, what are my options, right? And so then you start to figure out like, okay, well, let's, you know, what if we call Redis or Memcache? And then you say, well, even that network hop really slows things down. So like, what if we put Redis on the machine? Okay, but then do you have to duplicate all your data on every machine? Well, okay, now I need to figure out sharding, right? Like, how am I going to shard my data to the right machines that need that data and not the ones that don't need it? And so one little decision of saying like, okay, well, we, we can't, we don't want to scale up SQL Server or Oracle or whatever to this level, then leads you down the rabbit hole of, okay, how do I build this architecture out this way? Sounds awfully complicated. <laughs> <laughs> it is very complicated, but it's very fun. Uh, you know, and I think, you know, you tend to, you tend to, uh, there's developers that really want to work on that type of stuff. And I think they just end up gravitating towards these really complex distributed systems. Um, and those are the people we try to hire. I thoroughly enjoy adding only the necessary complexity where where possible. So, you know, starting with a, a basic application, like I said, line of business developer, our stuff is usually pretty boring. We're looking to minimize repeated calls to databases. So we might introduce some caching mechanism, maybe Redis cache, something like that. Uh, so it sounds like those types of optimizations are, are at least similar uh, across the board when you're looking at something in, in the hyperscale that you're looking at. I'm wondering if, if maybe without going into any trade secrets or anything, divulging too much information, I'm wondering what a, a typical request looks like in an application like Kevl, maybe even you know something in the back of your head. How how might you design something for that type of immense scale that that you're looking for? Yeah, so I mean, the interesting thing is like we're at scale, and we also have uh, we have really low latency requirements. So we have to make these calls in under fifty milliseconds, or like fifty to one hundred milliseconds. Uh, you have to return which promotion or promoted listing like you should show. Uh, so that's the other really limiting factor, huh. right? Like if if you had a lot of time, then there's probably things you could do differently than the way we did it. Um, but I think the the kind of key thing. So if we think about an ad request, uh, you know that comes into our API, right? And we use we're mostly on Amazon. So, you know, it comes into a load balancer. It gets sent to a machine running Nginx. Uh, the servers are mostly written in Node. Um, so, it, you know, it makes a call into the Node process. That, uh, that then calls to Redis, right? So Redis has this local version of the data that it needs, right? And then it, it, so it finds the data it needs. And then it does a bunch of operations around filtering and targeting and auctions and some of that happens in, in Redis, some of that happens in the, in the code, and that's kind of part of what we optimize. Like it's, it can actually change a lot based on the data set. Like that's one of the hardest things about optimizing, right? Is like you can go, you can go write an application and it's, it's very optimized for a certain data set, but then customers start doing something different, right? Like, you know, like a line of business app, you come in and you say, oh, well, there's only six items in this dropdown, that's fine. They call you back a year later and they have like 24,000 in that dropdown. <laughs> How'd you guys do that? Like, what is, what's going on? So same sort of thing. Like, it has to kind of constantly change sometimes based on the data shape and, like, how you optimize it. Um, but one thing you said about caching that I think is a really good point that 
that comes up a lot is that caching, especially in enterprise apps, caching really a lot of times is like a kind of an LRU cache, right? Like you're saying, I'll check the cache. If it's not there, I'll call the database. Well, at scale, you cannot do that because what happens is you DDoS your database if all your cache gets cleared because it might be, everything might be running fine because, you know, 99% of your requests are hitting the cache. But then let's say your server restarts or let's say all your servers restart, right? And then now suddenly every server, you know, hundreds of thousands of times a second are trying to call your database and it's just going to fall over, right? So you have to switch caching to really be push-based. And so what we do is we actually push things into the cache. It's not reading, like that system can never read it back out of the source. The source is actually looking at changes. So we have a basically a, you know, arbiter, right? That's like sitting in the middle saying, okay, I'm watching for changes in the source data. And then I'm, I'm pushing those out to the cache for them to go live. So do you have some kind of watchdog process in the background that, that invalidates cache when it knows it is necessary and repopulates? Yeah. So that the push can be either invalidation, like it can remove something or it can add something. Right. So it's really just kind of removing and adding constantly. Like, like thousands of times a second, like it's kind of ridiculous. Uh, you wouldn't you wouldn't think things change that much, but there's a lot of pacing logic and you know when you know, if something's serving too quick or not quick enough for all the rules that customers can set up. Yeah, this is really interesting, and I, and I guess it also we've been talking mostly about the scaling on the like actual operation of the application, but when you start to add all this complexity, how does your dev team scale? Uh, and how like I mean, how are they? How are you building, you know, splitting things up in such such a way that things can be built and deployed and sort of done independently, but need to be kind of orchestrated in this nice big gigantic orchestration? Yeah, it's it's complicated. <laughs> it's uh, like building teams. Like that's one of the challenges, right? Is as it gets more complex, the idea of having one engineer who can understand everything from the UI that the customer is interfacing with, or our customers interfacing with to the back end of that system, to, you know, the middleware, to the delivery engines. And then you have reporting, right, where we're pulling in all this all this data. Uh, it really becomes impossible, right? Like there's, I don't think there's anybody at the company anymore who, you know, knows everything in the stack, right? Like they might, there might be some, some people that have been around for long enough that they like, I could send a pull request for that, but they're not <laughs> going to know all the details of it, right? Uh, so you start to end up organizing around some of these seams in the system, right? And so when you look at like the front end, you know, the UI and, and kind of what we'll call like the management systems where you're saying this is where we're, you know, the customers inputting what ads they want to show or what promotions they want to show. And then there's that seam of like the middleware that then is pushes this out to the delivery side. Like that's a good natural split to say, well, we're going to have some engineers who are focused on the delivery, which is the really highly scalable uh, you know, piece of it that needs to handle these, you know, hundreds of thousands of requests a second. And then there's the the side that's working more on the, you know, the UI and the the management systems. And they just have a different skill set, right? Like maybe they're really good at UI and they're really good at uh, building nice interfaces, um, but they're not going to go then go build this backend, very scalable code. And I think they're both just as hard, right? Like it's not, it's not like one's easier. Uh, and then the same with reporting, right? Like there's, there's engineers who are really good at saying, okay, we're going to deal with terabytes of data and like figure out how to splice it up and make sure this all scales. They're not the same people who are going to build the highly scalable system or the, or the front end. 
And then you have a lot of work around orchestration, right? If you want to build a feature that goes across all three of those, right? You have to figure out what's the, what's the right approach to that and where does it start? How does that grow? I mean, because when, when you started Kevl, I mean, were you guys, you obviously, you were the one who started it, right? Um, but now you've got a large team behind you and you're not even in the code anymore. How quickly did that, that process take place? And like, how, what were some of the challenges you ran into as you sort of stretched in that way? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest challenge is really just the the coordination between these different teams, right? Because you can keep making more teams because there's enough subsystems and different parts, right? And you can even like, you know, we're, you know, you can split up the UI and say like, okay, you're focused on this parts of it versus this other team is focused on this other part. But it's just the overhead that, that gets created is the orchestration between them, right? So it's like, if we want to add a, a fairly simple feature, it could require, you know, changes to the UI so the customer can like click a checkbox, right? Like the simplest <laughs> change imaginable, right? But now that has to get back to the, you know, it has to go back to the database. And then it's like, well, that the middleware has to pick that up and be able to push it to the engines. The engines need to be able to look for that and do some behavior based on that being checked or not. And then maybe we want to report on it. So it has to get round trip to the logs, which the reporting team needs to know to pick it up and put it into that. And then you can, you can just start adding that. And so it, uh, it's really interesting because it, it is like a unique, you're not unique challenge, but it is a challenge, right? Of like, how do you build those kind of features that cross all of them? Um, and one of the things we've learned is that because like we're an API first company, one of the things that's helped us is to always focus on like build the API side of it first. So sometimes if we can just focus on, let's just build the API part of it first, uh, we don't have to bring in the UI yet, right? Let's prove it works from the API. We have customers who only use the API, never even log into the UI. So like they'll become the early adopters. And then from the reporting standpoint, one of the other really good things to do is to really loosely couple all these groups. Uh, uh-huh. And so we can add extra data to our logs and ship it to reporting. And they just they don't look at it, right? If it's not something they're looking for, it's just extra data. It just makes their files a little bit larger. And then down the road, you can say, hey, you know, we'd like to report on this. And oh, we've been sending you that data already for six weeks. Mm. And they're like, great, you know, we can turn that on. And so it's really making sure that you can make these kind of changes without breaking the contracts and APIs like between the different teams. Yeah, I imagine there's a, a fair amount of communication and coordination that needs to happen to, to ensure that this great grand new feature is is both implemented correctly and realized by the client and and all those concerned so that everybody gets the value that you would expect that they need out of it right yeah well i think and it definitely you know having more people like slows things down some right like it's going to take a little bit longer for some things uh so something we did recently was we started a team just focused on developer experience so we know we you know developers are a big part of our customer set that team is building things like SDKs, right? But then they'll also, maybe while they're building the SDK, they find something that's kind of an annoyance in the API. Well, we said, you know what? They shouldn't have to go coordinate that with that team. If they know how to fix it, they should be able to send a pull request. So you can kind of start to try to mimic some of the open source mentality like inside the company uh, by not really making it, you know, rules. Now we wouldn't want that person just like make the change, commit it and like deploy the other (laughs) team system, right? Like that's... (laughs) That's a little bit worse. But, you know, being able to send a pull request, it's like, great, that team can review it, commit it, get it out in a release. Yeah, and I imagine being an API-first company and and looking to make your SDKs full-featured and usable and valuable to your clients and your customers, I imagine 
you get really great feedback from from those folks that are utilizing these great software features that you're delivering for them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, SD, the SDK has been been fascinating, right? Like, uh, I think it's something we kind of waited too long to build because everybody's like, oh, it's you know, they're just some REST APIs and things like that. But the SDK makes SDKs make it a lot easier to get started, right? Like having uh, having something wrapped up and and kind of being a little opinionated on how to use it, like, is really helpful. Do you have any resources that you could direct our listeners to, to people that are maybe dealing with applications at scale or scaling up, whether that is from the application sort of uh, dealing with some of these architectural issues or whether that's, um, you know, dealing with teams and growth and, and whatnot? Yeah, it's a good question. I should have I should have prepared something. I might have to, maybe I'll share some stuff uh, with you all to include, include in the blog post or something okay. like that. Okay, yeah, we can do that. What has been helpful in your career that you might share with those just getting started or those looking to level up their own careers? Yeah, I think for me, um, the probably the best decision I ever made was becoming a consultant, uh, which I know like in the developer space, right? Like it's usually a kind of a separate group sometimes, but I uh, pretty quickly from, I worked at a couple companies and then went to a consulting company, uh, which eventually got acquired by Avanade. So like the kind of big Microsoft consulting company. And it was fascinating how quickly I got to learn by moving to projects like fairly quickly, like getting really exposed to other projects. Sometimes I would be on a project for, you know, two or three months, right? It was just like, oh, like throw an extra body on it, which is one of the <laughs> anti, you know, anti patterns of consulting, right? But you get to go learn like a whole new architecture. You get to learn like all these stuff and you don't really do a lot because you spend two months learning and then like a month writing some code. But like you get to learn a lot as a, as a developer. Uh, and then I went independent as a consultant. And I think that's even, even more interesting because you get to learn how to run your own business and it really changes your perspective when talking to business owners. Uh. Like one of the biggest things I see with developers a lot of times is when they're talking to, you know, the business side, uh-huh. right? Is that a lot of times the developer is really in the mindset of like, this is the code I want to write, or this <laughs> is the how I think the code should look. Or what do you mean that you told me this last week, right? And they're in this mode of like, I'm just taking orders. And you're always going to be frustrated if you're just taking orders, right? If you're just working at McDonald's, like I worked at drive-thru as a kid, right? It's not fun, right? You're just taking orders all day. And when you get to the point where you're like, I'm going to really learn what the business is trying to do. Like I'm going to participate in this process of business needs and how does software solve it. And to me, like that's when you become a senior engineer, right? Like there's engineers I've met who are, you know, 60 years old and they're still like a regular engineer, right? Because they just want to take orders. And to me, it's like when you really can say, you can go to the business and understand like, oh, okay, I understand now. Like you guys are shipping out 10% of the wrong product because it's hard to pick the right product in your UI. Let's figure out how we solve that, right? Like let's figure out how we make it the dropdown not have 60,000 items in it. Like let's, let's, let's figure out how we solve that problem. Like that's, I think, when developers really level up to a different level. And that's when businesses will pay you well north of six figures, right? Because you're providing like business value. But what what do you do when they say, shut up and take these orders? (laughs) 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 That's when it's never been a better time to be an engineer looking for work. Uh, And I think it's really funny. Like I, you know, I've interviewed a ton of engineers over the years and I've always, I think a lot of times the engineers who, who end up doing the best are the ones who are like, tell me about your business. Like how, what are the challenges you guys are facing? 
And the ones who usually don't do as well are like, what, what language do you use? What's your, you know, like what, uh, what, what kind of hardware do I get? What's the tool set? Right. Because you're really thinking in like, you know, are we selling Whoppers or Big Macs? It's like, what I want to know is like, what's the goal of the company? What's the software? What's the, or what's the business objectives for this software? And when you start to dig into that and then understand like, do I want to work for this company? Like, is it an interesting problem versus, you know, if, if you have no interest in it and they just want to give you orders, then it's like, Hey, like that's, you know, nothing wrong with that, but it's not going to like, I think unlock you to that next level of, of really having an impact. Absolutely. So uh, where, where can our listeners uh, to go to follow you or, you know, find out if you guys are hiring or something? Yeah, yeah, we actually are. We are hiring. Uh, we're hiring right now. So if you go to it's Kevel, K-E-V-E-L.co, uh, we have a careers page there. We're hiring engineers. Uh, and then I'm Avery J on Twitter. All right, James, thanks so much. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. That was James Avery. James is founder and CEO of Kevel. Previously co-founded TechPub and The Lounge and Ruby Row. If you'd like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes. Find show notes, blog posts, and more at sixfiguredev.com. And catch us live each week on Twitch. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at SixFigureDev. This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach their potential. I am John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash.